Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset's Friday News Roundup. Democratic frontrunners Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are bracing for a one-on-one battle ahead of the next round of presidential primaries. The tight race means upcoming Democratic primaries, including Illinois, are critical. Former Illinois Governor Pat Quinn and more than 80 other top Illinois Democrats are endorsing Joe Biden for president. Of course, the focus on Jussie Smollett. No surprise to Kim Fox. She's been facing attacks on this case throughout the campaign. The question is how much it will matter to voters in the voting booth. Joining me to break down those stories and more WTTW's Paris Schutz, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business, and David Greising of the Better Government Association. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Happy Friday. Friday. Okay, so let's start with election news. Senator Elizabeth Warren suspended her campaign yesterday morning, which means the Democratic primary race is now down to two candidates, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former Vice President Joe Biden. David, how do we end up here? Wow. Uh, It's been a long, strange journey. But uh, what happened was just before Super Tuesday, uh, Joe Biden just got this incredible amount of momentum coming out of the South Carolina primary. And after Super Tuesday, we saw Buttigieg. We saw all all the competitors kind of drop out. The big question facing us now is how sustainable Biden's momentum will be. And Illinois, which sometimes feels like a spectator as these primaries roll out, especially after Super Tuesday, Illinois right now is very much in focus because of the number of electoral votes that we have, because of the number of delegates that would be sent to the convention. And so we're seeing a lot of activity in the state right now. So March 17th is the Illinois primary. Do you think the Super Tuesday means anything for how Illinois voters are thinking about this with the understanding that now their options are down to two? Down to two. And just the shift, how quickly it happened, how quickly uh, Biden swooped up all this moderate support from other folks, is just kind of stunning how, how quickly things have moved, especially how given how diverse and huge our field was and how long this campaign has seemed. Illinois will be an interesting, it is a very representative state. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of different kinds of voting constituencies, and I'll be interested to see how they end up breaking, especially after this next round of primaries on the 10th, and we'll see how the debate performance goes as well. Um, these have Biden and Sanders have really different debating styles, and I'm excited to see them. Um, but yeah, Pritzker has pointed out that maybe Illinois should be one of the first primary states, right. given how diverse our, our voter profile is. Maybe we can expect to see a lot of Chicago's older black voters breaking for Biden like they did in South Carolina. I'll be interested to see what the youth vote turnout is, which could make more of a difference for Sanders. But I just don't know yet. A lot could change in the next uh, few days. Well, Sanders is planning a rally in Chicago this weekend. Biden is fundraising in Chicago next week. Paris, talk about the strategy going into this. Well, you know, it's what's interesting is Biden won all these states with barely any influence infrastructure, no money, no ads running in them. And and it was a, a, almost a landslide on Super Tuesday in some of these states. In Illinois, you have um, you, what you're going to have is the quote unquote Democratic establishment endorsing Joe Biden. So Mayor Lightfoot's going to do it today. Senator Dick Durbin, most of Illinois uh, Democratic congressional de- delegation. Sanders is, is going to keep fighting against the establishment. He's going to have the support of the teachers union. And as A.D. said, a lot of it is demographic. So who's going to turn out? Seems like uh, Sanders does better. Better in Chicago among the youth vote, among uh, Latinos. 
And so will they turn out? And the last poll, Paul Simon poll at the uh, Southern Illinois University, the poll was discredited a little bit, but it had Sanders on top. Now I wonder, with Klobuchar out, with Warren out, with Buttigieg out, whether that puts Biden over the top in Illinois. And the question of youth turnout in particular is really going to be a really decisive factor for Bernie Sanders. That question of whether he can kind of raise the participation, it seems so far that uh, his young people who are such enthusiastic supporters, they like to go to his rallies, they like to to tweet about him, etc., but they don't necessarily like to go out to the polls. And this has always been a problem with the younger generation. And Biden, whose support in the older generation is very strong, that's a demographic that does go out to the polls. So on a couple Tuesdays from now, that's really going to be... Bernie had an advantage when um, it was a more crowded field because his ceiling was always about 40%. But with Biden in, consolidating all that moderate support, will it stick to... 35, 65 or something like that. And now what does Warren do? I mean, she still hasn't said what she's going to do. I mean, there's a lot, there's some bad blood between her and and Bernie Sanders, even though folks believe that they were both in the progressive lane. And so, uh, so that would be the natural way that she should go. I personally, I would predict that she's not going to endorse Bernie Sanders. Maybe she doesn't endorse anybody. Well, speaking of endorsements, Joe Biden picked up endorsements from Senator Tammy Duckworth, Secretary of State Jesse White, um, some other folks. Bernie Sanders is being backed by, as you said, the two top Chicago uh, teachers union, Jesse Sharkey, uh, Stacey David Gates other prominent progressive leaders in Chicago. But how much do endorsements matter? Well, you're not talking about one uh, Michael Bloomberg, and that's an endorsement that really can matter for Mm -hmm. Joe Biden because of the amount of uh, money that Bloomberg has available and the infrastructure he had built. I'm still seeing Bloomberg ads on TV, and they haven't taken those down yet. But if you switch those out and turn them into Joe (laughs) Biden ads, that could really have have an impact. The rest of those endorsements, I think, get lost. Uh, You're seeing the, the largest number going. Going to Joe, Joe Biden, uh, we saw in South Carolina that an endorsement can really change a race, so they can have an impact. Speaking of ads, you know, Biden and Sanders are now running ads in Illinois, and it seems to be a race of who can hug Barack Obama. The squeeze him the tightest. I mean, because <laughs> Obama is narrating both of these ads. Sanders is using Obama remarks from somewhere where he's praising Bernie Sanders to make it look like Obama endorses Sanders. Same with Biden. Obama obviously is not endorsing in the primary. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, maybe, maybe it's a smart strategy for both of them in Illinois. It's the son of Illinois, Barack Obama. Let's see who who Obama likes the best. Right. The other thing I'm interested in is seeing how much interest in the presidential race trickles down to these down ballot races. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of and of course we've got uh, the big vote on the graduated income tax that in comes November. As, in, in November. November. So right. we've got a couple of things in play. Well, the next big contest is next Tuesday where voters in Michigan, Washington, Missouri, Mississippi, Idaho, and North Dakota they'll head to the polls. What will you be watching for coming out of that? What kind of impact could that have in Illinois? Well, the Michigan race will be interesting because that state is probably in many ways the most similar to Illinois. It also will be important as we look forward to the November vote because Michigan is such an important state among those various swing states. Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin are really the places where the election will be won or lost probably in the fall. And coming out of Michigan kind of to see who's doing better with, you know, labor and working class constituency that turned some of those swing states last time around, of which we have a fair number here in the state of Illinois. And I wonder if this Biden momentum signifies that the number one issue in the primary, you know, the the conventional wisdom in the past was it was health care. It wasn't Donald Trump. It was health care. But, you know, if he does well in Michigan, if he does well uh, this week, is the number one issue for Democratic primary voters beating Donald Trump? 
that's what this vote is all about, because it doesn't seem like there's a specific policy proposal that voters have rallied around with Joe Biden like they did with Sanders, Medicare for all. It's he looks like the guy that could be Donald Trump. Well, I wonder if if we zoom out really far and look at the, the larger picture, whether this is a reason we should reexamine the way we do primaries, because until South Carolina, nobody saw Joe Biden coming. His camp said, hey, this is going to be a turning point for our campaign. But what you have are, are candidates spending a lot of money in places like Iowa when the turning point came much later. So is this is this a reason to really, really look into it? Well, it's, as long as this is going to be the, the system, the, the, it is an effective strategy to not spend money in Iowa and New Hampshire. They don't mean what they did in the past in terms of momentum. You know, John McCain, he was the comeback kid then. He didn't, Straight Talk Express. The Straight Talk <laughs> Express. He, he was left for dead until I don't remember which primary it was that, that boosted him, but he didn't do well in, in, in the beginning. He had no money. So maybe it is smart. Maybe it was a strategy by the Biden campaign. Maybe it was a gamble saying we're not going to spend our limited resources we have right now in these smaller unrepresentative states, Iowa and New Hampshire. We're going to wait. We know we're good in South Carolina and we're, we're going to make that the sort of starting point. Yeah. And it worked. But we also saw Bloomberg skip those early states right. entirely and make this right. giant bet on Super Tuesday, which failed. Right. But Bloomberg wasn't counting on such a disastrous showing in the debate that really yeah. just took everything out of Getting his campaign. Getting completely sniped. Right. <laughs> had, had he done better in the debate, the, the outcome might have been different. But to Paris's point, the fact that Biden always knew he had South Carolina in his back pocket, what wasn't anticipated probably was the, the springboard effect that that had right. in terms mm-hmm. of the rollout ahead of Super Tuesday and, and afterward. Um, that we haven't ever really seen before. It's very unusual for voters to make their minds up at the last minute like this. It's, right. Is it? And that's what, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I had a lot of friends who, given this field, had no idea who they were going to vote for. Really? But, I mean, but, in the past, yeah. you don't see voters breaking for someone in, in, in the last hours. But I wonder, if, is it that they're breaking for someone, or are we just doing a bad job of figuring out where people's minds are? Probably. And we probably <laughs> should spend less time figuring out where well, people's minds are. But if you look at the way that early voting is coming in, and you look at the way that the day of voting is coming in, it is showing that there is a people, if you look at early voting as a proxy for how people, if they hadn't changed their mind, would have voted, the early voting is different than the day of voting. So I think it is that people are breaking late in the well, race. Well, I also just think that there's so much more complexity in, in voting blocks than we mm-hmm. than we really like to like to pay attention to. And, it, and it's hard to suss out, right? You, it's hard to get down into the, the deep minutia of why this certain sliver of this certain group may vote this certain way. Mm-hmm. But I think we, we have to give some weight to that complexity in a way we, we just don't and, and sometimes aren't able. We need to fill air, you know, before. <laughs> we could <laughs> simplify it the way that President Trump does. It's either Sleepy Joe or what, Crazy Bernie. Right. And, and, you know, that he really has a way of simplifying things that way. So. You're, you're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. When we break down the week's top stories, our panel today is Paris Schutz from WTTW, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business, and David Greising of the Better Government Association. Some other stories we're watching today. Cook County Commissioner Jeff Tobolsky announced he will resign from his position today at the request of Board President Tony Preckwinkle. This comes just months after a September raid by feds targeted him and weeks after his top aide was indicted on corruption charges. Tobolsky has been a county commissioner since 2010. And President Donald Trump has signed an $8.3 billion measure to help tackle the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. The legislation provides federal public health agencies money for vaccines, tests, and potential treatments. A dozen 
dozen people have died in the U.S., and over 200 are infected across 18 states. I want to turn now to the Democratic primary race in Illinois' 3rd Congressional District. Incumbent Dan Lipinski is facing three challengers, including progressive candidate Marie Newman of LaGrange. David, why is this race so significant? This race will really be a proxy on whether progressive politics are popular in the broader, the western part of Cook County and the city of Chicago. It's also the Dan Lipinski comes from a longtime Chicago political name. He runs as a Democrat, but Marie Newman's charge against him that he's awfully conservative for his district is quite interesting. She focuses on his 54 Uh, votes in favor of abortion bills. But I was looking at other positions he's taken. He was against Obamacare. He was against the DREAM Act. He boycotted Nike because they had Colin Kaepernick in their ads. Um, He signed an amicus brief in the recent Louisiana Supreme Court case that is probably the most extreme attack on abortion in recent years. So it's not just the abortion issue with Dan Lipinski. He really is a conservative and possibly vulnerable in this race that he won by only a couple thousand votes against Newman in the last go-around. Paris, how do you think his record could impact his re-election bid? He almost lost, as David said, a couple years ago, and, and Newman's coming back two years later. But the difference now is that there's two other candidates in the race. One of them has ties to Lipinski might have been planted there to try and split the vote. So he's taking nothing for granted this time. And it's a Democratic district. You know, Mike Madigan's 13th Ward is part of the district. And it goes, snakes down the Stevenson Expressway uh, into some of the southwest suburbs. It's like working class union Democrat, but more socially conservative. And he makes a big deal that he's pro-life. And that's the big thing Marie Newman is trying to hit. It seems like if we go on the last election's results, it's kind of split down the middle here, whether that district is more liberal and progressive or more conservative. And there's some and changing demographics in the district, too. There's changing. There's more more Hispanic, you know, maybe more, you know, high income suburban areas that that were not happy with Donald Trump. But I just don't think we're going to know until, you know, until let's stop predicting and see what happens it was close last time, but if Lipinski wins again, I think that's an endorsement for, you know, the district isn't as liberal as Marie Newman and some of these uh, more progressive groups hope it is. Well, A.D., you've been reporting on campaign fundraising in local and statewide races. How much is being spent in the Democratic primary, specifically for the Cook County State's attorney's rates? So as of earlier this week, <laughs> it was $17 million, Wow, which is record-breaking. It's a race of billionaires and also outside influence groups. So obviously folks are should be well aware that Bill Conway's father, who is the founder of the Carlisle Group, has been feeding millions and millions of dollars into his son's campaign for months, which has gone into plenty of TV ads that started earlier than almost any other race in this primary. Kim Fox has not kept up with fundraising, but she's getting help from outside groups, one of whom we are not sure who is funding. They have not filed what's known as an A1 that shows where the money is coming from. And the other one is a Soros, a George Soros-backed group that has been getting involved in DA and state's attorney's races around the country. It's very tight. I mean, I've been trying to speak to their camps as often as possible about what the polling looks like. Um, we had a couple that political reported on this week that had undecideds around 18 percent and them separated by somewhere between 2 and 12 percent. It's it's. Definitely tightened. That's what the polls are showing. And Kim Fox has gotten some big local money. Fred Eichner and Michael Sachs, two big um, political players in town. So that's pretty interesting as opposed to kind of 
daddy funding Kevin Conway's and, and she's got all the official endorsements. I mean, across right. the spectrum. And this is kind of one of the few areas. The that only Tony Laurie event. Tony, yeah, Preckwinkle <laughs> and Laurie Lightfoot, mortal enemies, but they both came together to support Fox. But you'll see as far left as the teachers union all the way to Mayor Laurie Lightfoot and other elected officials saying, you know, Kim Fox is, is the right person for Cook County State's attorney. And then uh, one presidential candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders, one former one, Elizabeth Warren, offered their endorsement. And every bit of reporting that I've seen or I've done in the South or West Side, you know, communities of color, they say that they just don't like the Smollett story. They think this is a distraction. They're not paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more about, you know, not incarcerating the world. Right. A.D., what other local races are you keeping an eye on, specifically around this issue of campaign fundraising? Oh, I'll be watching the Illinois Supreme Court race. Uh, it's a rare open seat that almost never happens around here. We have a couple self-funders in that race, but the fundraising is different for a, a court race than it is for any other. They have to have like a separate committee, and the, the candidate themselves can't do any fundraising. That doesn't mean they can't donate to themselves. Uh, for example, we saw Shelley Harris uh, donate more than $2 million to his own campaign. But we don't see them up on TV as much as we might in these other races. So it's it's not as apparent where that money is going. A fifth person has tested positive for COVID-19 in Illinois. WGN has identified the patient as 21-year-old Edward Campbell. He spoke to reporters from the hospital. Let's listen. You can't get a full breath of air. So that made me realize, you know, with the regular flu or with a regular cold, you know, I don't usually experience such like respiratory problems. So then I said, you know, I also you know, want to be smart and safe about this because if I'm going to go into quarantine, you know, I, I don't want to put anybody else at risk. Public health officials say be prepared, but don't panic. David, do you think that message is getting through to people? Well, you're seeing a few people kind of wear masks, which everybody says doesn't have any effect unless you actually have the virus and you're trying to protect other people from it. I keep an eye on some of the business and economic impacts, and uh, nobody's panicking, but we're seeing some really troubling developments, like, for example, the cancellation of the Houseware Show, which is one of the biggest conventions, 60,000 people come into town for that every year, United canceling flights. Um, Ace Hardware canceled their their convention today. Right. There's talks about factories even possibly shutting down for this. Um, These are, besides the health scare that that is very legitimate and we have to pay attention to, the economic impact is something that really could affect all of us. Paris, what are you seeing in terms of the the impact this is having on local organizations and businesses? Well, business is great if you make hand sanitizer or soap. Uh, I mean, they're flying off the shelves. But as David mentioned, Chicago-based United, they're canceling most of their flights to China. I mean, that's that's a chunk of, of their revenue right there. The city of Chicago's budget is going to be affected by it. I mean, the houseware show, what was the economic impact? It was something like... Sixty million or something like that. So it's, there's it's hospital stays, it's restaurant visits, right. it's so ancillary the, spending, it's wages for all those folks that work at that actual and their show. Sales it's tax. Travel, it's sales tax. Sales tax that comes from that goes to, You said hospital. I think you meant hotel. Yeah, hotel, 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 hotel depends hotel. on whether you have the virus or not. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. So it's gonna it'll have a small impact on on the city budget unless you know unless it becomes a pandemic in the United States and then more shows are going to cancel less people will travel and the budget will be affected and the overall city's economy will be affected well today US senator Dick Durbin joined a panel of local and state health officials to talk about the response to coronavirus here's a clip of Dr. Ngoze Zeke she's director of the Illinois Department of Public Health we have 5 cases in a population of almost 13 million you just have to appreciate that. So when we say that the risk to Illinoisans is low, it's that we think that is definitely the case at this point. I can't 
perfectly predict what is around the bend, but any changes in our status, that will be quickly and effectively communicated to the public. Illinois was the first state to offer testing for COVID-19. AD, what's your sense of how prepared city and state officials are right now? Well, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has has been asked about this at every single press availability she's had this week, and she said, we are overprepared. We are overprepared. And one of the things we did this past summer was a giant exercise which involved health officials basically planning for if a pandemic came to Chicago via a flight from China and spread nationwide from there. So she's like, we are specifically prepared for something like this. We will overcommunicate and we press upon the media not to focus on the panic, but to also inform folks that are listening and watching, what they can do to prevent the spread. And Go by ahead. not going to Chinatown, you're not doing anything to prevent the spread. You know, Chinatown is really struggling in terms of business. Restaurants are, are, are way down. They've they've thrown a couple press conferences saying, please, folks, come back out, eat our delicious food and, and shop in our, in our district here. Because like the um, health director said, five cases in a state of 13 million, it's minuscule. So you have the state and, and city response to... COVID-19. But then there's the federal response as well. David, what's your take on how the Trump administration is handling this? Wow. Um, If the president really does have magical powers to make this go away, I would recommend that he begins using them now. The trouble that with the administration has been that the president is putting out messages that actually undermine the effectiveness of the real medical professionals who so far seem to be doing a somewhat competent job of at least tracking how this is spreading, of kind of partitioning out where the kits go, et cetera. There seems to be, depending on whose numbers you believe, a significant shortage in terms of the testing kits, and that's what's really going to be important. The number available is not nearly up to what the ultimate need may be, and so kind of rationing out how those are distributed, which the administration has made clear that it is kind of trying to uh, take part in that. They're also encouraging and seeking to do what they can to hurry up um, the development of a vaccine. The usual time period is about a year, and they're trying to speed that up, uh, not to mention the testing capabilities as well. So the professional, the administrative response seems pretty good, but then President Trump, every once in a while in an availability, will say something that turns everything kind of Topsy-turvy. Well, it seems like his, his his interest here is is more on his politics and on on the you know the markets having a terrible few weeks. So his messaging is to try to assuage people to if it does get really bad to not blame him. You know, blame the media because they're overhyping the coronavirus stuff. So it seems like w- when he contradicts his own health professionals, it's about trying to preserve his own political standing. Well, the president did sign an $8.3 billion measure to help deal with the outbreak in the U.S. And A.D., we had Illinois health officials going to D.C. to say, hey, we need some additional funding. How do you think that money will be used here? Hopefully on more testing availability. Um, Any kind of infrastructure help helps. Um, One thing that the mayor said this week was they were kind of getting mixed messages from the federal government, especially O'Hare being such a hub for international travel, about how they should handle folks being quarantined, for example. Is that enforceable? If someone gets off of a flight and refuses to be quarantined, what kinds of powers does the city have? Any infrastructure help will be of use. Uh, I was speaking with our healthcare reporter at Cranes, and she said there are local hospitals that are hyper-prepared and actually 
think of it as a badge of honor to be handling these patients in a responsible way. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset when we break down the week's top stories. With us today, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business, David Greising of the Better Government Association, and Paris Schutz of WTTW. Some other stories we're watching today, R&B singer R. Kelly has pleaded not guilty to a 13-count federal indictment that includes child pornography charges and allegations involving a new accuser. Kelly faces several dozen counts of state and federal sexual misconduct charges in Illinois, Minnesota, and New York. He has denied abusing anyone. And Fraternal Order of Police Lodge 7 President Kevin Graham is advancing to a runoff in his bid for a second term, heading the union for 12,000 Chicago officers. That's after barely surviving the election's first round. Graham edged out his former ally, Martin Pribe, by just 30 votes. And in the runoff, Graham faces John Catanzara, an officer stripped of police powers in a disciplinary case. Well, let's turn to some news from CPD. Interim Chicago Police Superintendent Charlie Beck stripped two officers of their police powers. This comes after a cop shot an unarmed man at the Grand Red Line Station. Paris, what can you tell us about this? Well, I wonder how how swiftly officials would have acted if there wasn't cell phone video of this. But it it appears from the video and from from what Superintendent Beck is saying that these cops violated the use of force policy, that they fired on an unarmed man uh, in an area where there were lots of other people. I mean, what if there was a stray bullet that shot an onlooker? I think beyond this, COPA has made its recommendation, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, and the process of of litigating this entire situation for the police has got to play out. I don't want to jump to any more conclusions other than to say from the preliminary evidence, it looks like they violated the use of force policy. And we should note that uh, Interim Superintendent Beck asked State's Attorney Kim Fox to drop the resisting arrest and narcotics charge against the man who was shot by officers. We have a clip of Mayor Lori Lightfoot addressing the incident. Let's listen. What I saw um, was concerning. Do you support their decision? Well, it's not for me to say I support it or I don't support it. I'm not surprised by it under the circumstances. David, Mayor Lightfoot had previously said the video footage of the incident was, quote, extremely disturbing. Your thoughts on the mayor's response here? She's being a little bit more measured in that statement that we just heard, which is appropriate given the concerns about these people do have a right to due process. Uh, But it does seem, based on the video that many of us have seen because it's been posted all over the Internet, that uh, it it is troubling to see the way that this individual was handled by these police officers. The thing that's going on in the background, too, is that this happened on the same day that that there was an increase in police patrols on Mm. the CTA line. Let's not forget that there have been a series of incidents on the red line, on the CTA lately, and that these cops, they may have been concerned about what all has been going on lately. And and so they may have been a little bit uh, more on edge, and that's what happens, especially when uh, less senior officers go out on patrol and they're on edge. This yeah, sort these of were, these were pretty new, pretty new officers. I think they both graduated in 2017. And uh, the Tribune came out with a report recently that said these officers are not specifically trained on how to do their jobs in a crowded space like the CTA. There's no specific training for dealing with high volume areas and close quarters like that. And we should also note that this guy got in trouble for going between trains, which is not not right. deserving of lethal force. And apparently he was unarmed. Unarmed. And, and, the, and the cops had known that. Right. And the thing that this department should be focusing on in light of its consent decree is de-escalation policies, which we did not see in the video. Obviously, we didn't see the entire incident, but the handling seems inappropriate given the crime committed. And you bring up the consent decree and just flipping over to the FOP election, 
we saw officer after officer, including Kevin Graham and other leaders of the FOP, all testify against the consent decree in the court hearing on this. And this is one of the problems that the police department is dealing with, is that the leadership in the rank of, of the rank-and-file police officers is resisting this kind of change in culture where cops get better training and actually follow the rules. There's kind of a rogue spirit in this uh, FOP uh, rank and file that that not to say that these younger officers are that way, but there's a this brings to light some of the serious problems regarding training of police out on the streets. Well, as we wrap up here, I'd love to hear what you're going to be following in the coming weeks, AD. The primaries, yeah. first and foremost. I want to see how those turn out and. Uh, these last few days of campaigning, how much money people spend. Paris, what about you? Well, the primaries are the obvious answer, but let's 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 say the the FOP runoff election. I mean, uh, Catanzara versus Kevin Graham. You know, what has to be said is the city council is going to have to approve any new police contract, so they can yell and scream and say we're going to get tougher and tougher and negotiate a, a, a much more favorable contract. But there's just going to be reform and a consent decree, or else there will not be a contract. So I don't, and I don't know what the end game is. Running here is. without a contract right, at this right. point, David. What about you? I'm keeping my eyes on the Springfield uh, Ethics Reform Commission, which is due to have its report out by March 30th. The resignation of Jeff Tobolsky today uh, just is another indication of the big widespread corruption problem in this state. And this commission's recommendations are going to be very important. That's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, David Greising of the Better Government Association, Paris Schutz of WTTW, and A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business. Hey, have a great weekend, guys. Thanks, you, Jen. And that's your Friday Reset. Watch your podcast feed because Sunday morning we'll bring you the final installment of our first Closing the Gap series. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jen White. Hey, enjoy this warm-up we're supposed to get, and let's talk again soon. Thank you.